Hey, welcome to the show tonight. How'd you like that new uh, lead-in? Taking a little bit more because the video is bigger than it should be, so I have to do it from my desktop. So it kind of makes things interesting. I'm going to remove it right now so I can get my guest in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And we've got a great show tonight. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. We are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at www.californiahaunts.org. And we also have a great site for the radio show at www.californiahauntsradio.com if you want to visit us. We're 35 strong up and down the state of California, nonprofit. We just like to go out and help people. It's what we do. Anyway, again, we've got a great show tonight. And I'm excited because I grew up camping and fishing and hiking up in the North Woods here in Northern California. And Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox and all that was a big part of that. You know, the Paul Bunyan parades and all that stuff. And Chad has written a great book about Paul Bunyan. And he also has written a lot of books about legends of the North Woods. Um, you know, lumberjack legends, you know, sitting around the fire telling stories of lumberjacks at night. Because there was no back then, you know, back in the old days, there was no TV. So they just sat like, like everybody else camping. You sit around the fire and tell stories. So I'm eager to talk with Chad. So without further ado, let me bring Chad in and welcome him hello ah greetings from the north woods of wisconsin there you go i just love the woods <laughs> yeah you can't beat it i mean when you think of the north woods you think of that cabin you think of the bonfire roasting marshmallows i mean it's a traditional iconic summer or even winter vacation absolutely Sitting around that warm fire, you know, and telling stories and stuff and, you know, the animals and God, there's always something to see and something to do. Well, I think nowadays when more and more people are in bigger cities, when you get to the outskirts, to the wilds, you forget the noises that come with being in the outdoors. And if you're not a adventurous camper, you don't do it very often. Uh, sitting in your tent at night, you start to wonder, what are those sounds? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what a, people, a lot of people don't understand is that even though you're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, it's still a, it's, it's a, it's a noisy place. I mean, even the wind going through the trees, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get a noise. There's always a noise out there. And again, city folk have a very hard time since we're all living in light sources. When you get out to these dark, dark places, you forget just how dark it is <laughs> out there. And if you have to leave your tent at night to use the restroom or what be it. Uh, it's uh, much different from city life. Oh, yeah. I mean, like living even where I live in Sacramento, you could still make out some of the brighter constellations. When I get up in the mountains, I'm lost. I look mm. up and I'm just like, wow. You know, it's just it looks like you're in a snow globe You know, <laughs> yeah. with all the stars. It's just craziness. But it's a wonderful lifestyle to be in the North Woods. It really or any, any woods for that matter. It's, it's a wonderful lifestyle. And I think Tell we're me blessed. about you. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No. Um, yeah. Well, my background's in the field of psychology. But for the last 25, 30 years, I've been traveling the world in search of the strange and unusual. And part of that growing up in the Midwest was hearing all of these lumberjack tales and legends of both creatures that were obviously fictional, that were presented with a wink and a nudge. And then others were... It was a little iffy, iffy as to whether these things actually existed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you spent how, how many years doing this? Well, I started when I was in high school. I grew up in Wisconsin in one of the near one of the three UFO capitals of the world we claim to have here in our state of Wisconsin. So in high school, I went to the nearby town of Elmwood and I started interviewing people about what they were seeing in the sky. And then that following fall, I started college studying psychology, and that's what I was really interested in. What is it about human perception or belief systems that some people believe in all of this stuff and others do not? And that really blossomed. I went and did my master's thesis in looking at students' belief in the paranormal, and it just kind of blossomed from there for the next 20 plus years. And you traveled the world, right? I love being what's in your own backyard, but I also love, obviously, knock on wood, pre-COVID times of traveling the world to get their perspective on legends, whether it was from me chasing vampire lore in Transylvania to uh, looking for the Loch Ness Monster to 
chasing chupacabra legends in Central America. Um, I think to really get a good perspective on how we view legends and folklore in the U.S., it's very important to see how the rest of the world views these legends because outside of the many native legends we have here, the indigenous people, every other legend was practically brought here when the immigrants came over and mm -hmm. brought their fear of werewolves and vampires and banshees and other things with them. So a lot of these legends we owe to the immigrants that, that came here uh, in the early days, our foremothers and fathers. Well, you know, I'm talking about Paul Bunyan and, and that legend, and, and the lumberjack legends, because, I mean, like you say, a lot of people spend a lot of time in the woods. You know, it's nice to sit around a campfire and, and spin stories. I know I used to buy books on the stuff just so when I was camping, I, I, I could tell stories to people, you know, about what was going on. But growing up, you know, like I said, um, I spent a lot of time on, on, on the West Coast um, in the Redwoods and stuff, and and. There's a lot of Paul Bunyan lore. There's parades, you know, in honor of Paul Bunyan. You know, even working in Placerville, like I did up in uh, up in the mountains up here, they didn't say a lot about it, but there was always a got you know the biggest guy in town was always dressed up, you know, with a big axe carrying the axe coming down the middle of Main Street, and so it's it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing, and I remember even in elementary school that was required. You know, that was part of our reading, was to read about Paul Bunyan. So, you know, shifting into this. Where did the legend of Paul Bunyan start? How, 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 did that, how did that get started? Well, many people believe it came from Canada, the big woods. Mm -hmm. And there are several variations that may have. And it drifted from the East Coast, obviously, when lumber was big there in Maine, Vermont, upstate New York, before it made its way to the Great Lakes of Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, and then out your way, mm -hmm. out west. And, and Paul, we believe the first oral tales of Paul Bunyan originated in a lumber camp north of Tomahawk, Wisconsin. Somewhere in the 1870s, late 1870s, they pinned it down there. But the first written account of Paul didn't surface until 1903 in Minnesota in Duluth in their newspaper where they wrote about Paul Bunyan. So in that time span, tens of thousands of men coast to coast were telling Paul Bunyan tales. They were talking stories about working with Paul at the big camp on the river. And everyone knew of him, but to be in print wasn't until 1903, which is amazing when you think about it. And back then, Paul was much different viewed than he is today. Um, if any of your listeners close their eyes and think of Paul Bunyan, they probably think of the big, strapping, muscular man, uh, clean, uh, cut hair, you know, nice beard, the uh, red and black flannel coat. And uh, in the old days, he looked more like a caveman straight out of the woods, like he was this prehistoric half-human, half-beast walking out, you know, scraggly beard, dark uh, suit all over him. And then in the 1920s and 30s, they even changed him a bit more where he was kind of like your... Um, uh, overweight uncle, that mm -hmm. he was a little bit more plump. Uh, he had that friendly, rosy cheek face, and they used him to sell um, lumber at the lumber yards. And they'd have him with his hat on and a cigar, of course, but much different than he looks today, like you think of like the brawny man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like, like you say, to look back and, and see the different versions of Paul. And then what I found interesting was Babe the Blue Ox. I, I don't remember. I, I heard you on another show talking about Babe and how Babe came to be. And it, it, I, I'd never heard that version. Yes, the legend of uh, Babe is that one day during the terrible winter of the blue snow, and it was the blue snow because it was so cold that winter that people were cursing up a blue streak so long that it turned all the snow blue and they recorded it as having two winters that season because that's how terrible the weather was it was so cold that winter that fish grew fur to stay warm and paul found babe as a, a young normal uh calf out in the snow and babe had been there so long that he had already turned blue so paul took him into his lumber camp nursed him to health and like everything around paul bunyan Babe grew to an enormous size, and Paul and Babe remained friends uh, for the rest of their lives, <laughs> traveling you know, throughout the United States, making the Grand Canyon, 
clearing all the trees out in North Dakota, making the Mississippi River, and many, many other things. But it all started with Paul finding him in the deep winter snow. What state he found him in, that depends on what state you live in, because obviously it's going to be your state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you think started the, the, the legend of Paul Bunyan? Is it just, you know, a bunch of guys after work tired, you know, out, 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 you know, out the lumberjacks you know, around the fire? Or was it just something that, you know, just happened? So let's set the scene. Um, a lot of people don't realize how big the lumber industry was, where every winter, at least in the states that had a winter, the lumberjacks would head up north, tens of thousands of them, leaving their family, their farms, their friends behind, and they would work in the north woods the entire winter and then collect their pay and come home and buy more farmland or save the family farm. And they would work brutal days from what they called can't see to can't see. So they would start their day before the sun came up and they wouldn't end it until long after the sun went down. So can't see to can't see. Mm -hmm. So afterwards, all they had to do was go to their bunkhouse, which is like a huge dorm area where all of them had a little uh, bunk in the cabin and dry out their clothes and tell tales around the fireplace you know, the uh, cooker drying out their foods. And that was their entertainment. They were so exhausted. They just laid in their cots and told stories, trying to one up one another. Someone would tell a story and someone else would try to one up it. And that's where the legend of Paul began because these men prided themselves on hard work. There were so many contests where there was no prize, no extra bonus money, nothing, but it was just meant to see who could do the most work who could produce the most. They took great pride in that. So Paul kind of came out of that where people were talking and they say, no, you should have worked with Paul like I did, this Paul Bunyan guy. He could do this or he could do that. And unfortunately, many of the early legends of Paul Bunyan, we don't know. They weren't recorded because when folklorists or sociologists or newspaper reporters went to interview these lumberjacks, the Paul Bunyan stories they were recording were sexist, racist, and full of sexual prowess, stuff that wasn't fit for the paper back then. So it would be obscene. They'd get fined if they printed this. So they they lost it. So a lot of the Paul Bunyan legends we know today are a little bit later in the calendar than the early ones. Well, that's understandable, though, because those guys, (laughs) there's no women up there. You know, they're up there for however long the season is to to chop wood and, and do what they have to do. So it's going to go that way because it's just guys. It's, it's guy yes. talk. And at, at that point, remember, this was the 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. But it was a kind of weird dichotomy because you had what you would consider the traditional uh, guy talk, you know, pre-Me Too movement or Time's Up movement. Uh, this was what you would think of as, you know, guys getting together and uh, not being politically correct back then. But at the same time, the lumberjacks had a policy that if you could do the work as somebody else, you'd get paid the same amount, regardless of your religion, your race, uh, your language. Um, So there were tons of African-American lumberjacks. There were many Native American lumberjacks. A lot of the logging was done on native land at the time. Mm -hmm. The old joke was that on any given night in the bunkhouse, you could hear snoring in 10 different languages (laughs) because that's where people were. So it was this melting pot, even though it was, you know, unacceptable behavior based on today's uh, definition of it. So really, these stories for with Paul Bunyan, I mean, these these things could be around the world as well. I mean, like you say, because it is a melting pot. So, I mean, obviously the Native Americans were hearing these stories and whoever else was was working at the bunkhouse. And then not only that, yes, uh, you, you also had people from all over the world bringing mm-hmm. their form of legends in with it as well. Sure. So, and stories were never told like somebody sat around and spun a yarn for 20 minutes. It was maybe a three minute story and then somebody would interject saying, oh, you got that wrong. I worked with Paul and the Big Onion camp and... This is what happened. And no stories were ever told the same way twice. If they weren't morphing and progressing, they were dying. So the stories were always improved, and these storytellers were amazing. 
I mean, I'd love to just stick my head back in a bunkhouse and go back in time to just hear these stories. Probably wouldn't want to stay there very long because you can imagine, you know, 30 men in a small room with no windows or ventilation drying their wet wool clothes they haven't bathed in weeks or maybe a month or two, smoking their tobacco. You can imagine the stench that just kind of rolled <laughs> through the bunkhouse. So that would have been an experience just to uh, take that in as well. When you started researching the book, how did you get started? Because, I mean, the, 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 like you say, there's the legends that, that we know now, and then there's the stuff from way before. So how did you go about doing that? I got started um, in Wisconsin here. We have a town called Rhinelander, which is the home of the Hodag. And um, I had done a ton of research in the Northwoods about cryptozoology uh, and cryptids, uh, creatures, unknown creatures that uh, are thought to exist. What you like, you consider the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, mm -hmm. the Wendigo and the like. But I started coming across these creatures that were just so fantastic. Uh, that it was just kind of a, a, a portal almost into this world of lumberjacks. And I started digging through the old newspaper archives and lumberjack journals from some of the old timers that wrote about their time back then and started digging up these creatures. And then, of course, there were many folklorists back in the, the 1920s uh, and beyond that did little monographs of these creatures, a book a little mm -hmm. pamphlet of their 10 favorite creatures. So there was always that there as a, a base, like anything today, you're always building on those who came before you. And luckily for me, there were many at the turn of the, the 1900s that had produced a lot of this folklore. So it was just a matter of taking that and then digging into my own original research. Interesting. And, um, what did you find? I mean, like you say, you, you found that, you know, the, the, the legends kind of kind of evolved over the years. But, but what, what, what did you find the most striking similarity in all the Paul Bunyan legends? A lot of them were meant to explain things that were going on. And for instance, at night, you're in the lumber camp in the winter. You're in a bunkhouse. Again, no windows, no ventilation. You hear a blizzard coming through. It's rattling the, the wood, it's knocking over trees, cracking down in the forest, all these odd noises. And of course, that couldn't just be the weather. It had to be something responsible for it. So for that, they termed it the splinter cat, this mm -hmm. panther-like creature with an oh, amble-sized head that could jump out of a tree and smash into another tree and crack it over. So when you'd hear the freezing temperatures crack these trees, it had to be the splinter cat, or that when you were walking in the woods and you got that sense that somebody was behind you, mm -hmm. uh, that you were being followed, but every time you turned around, nobody was there, that was the hide behind following you. A creature that was uh, very good at hiding behind anything, where if you're standing in the woods, it's right behind you. If you spin 180 degrees, it's still behind you. They said the hide behind was so good at hiding that eventually it could hide behind itself. That's how good of a hider it was. So they explained all these things away with these sometimes whimsical creatures, but mostly dangerous creatures. Excuse me, how are they dangerous? I'd say a good, well over 50%. And so far, researchers uh, long before me have come up with over a hundred creatures that the uh, lumberjacks believed in, or at least told stories about. Wow! And uh, many of them are, you know, kind of fun and whimsical. Like I said, like the furry trout, these fish that it gets so cold they grow fur to keep themselves warm, and you can catch them. Or the antlered trout because they started eating so many mammals that the calcium grew horns <laughs> or antlers on their head. Uh, even flying fish that now live in trees. So those kind of things are just fun and fantastical and amusing. But then like the hodag was said to rip lumberjacks apart or that the mosquitoes were so terrific that they could come down and pluck you off the shoreline <laughs> and take you away. Or the hide behind would sneak up behind you, of course, 
and grab you and bring you to its lair and you'd never be heard from again. So a lot of these were cautionary tales in a profession that was the most dangerous already in the United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's not forget about the jackalope, right? The jackalope's great because people think of the jackalope, which if any of your listeners are familiar with lumberjack creatures, they're probably familiar with the jackalope. If you've ever stopped in any roadside attraction gift shop, you'll see what appears to be a rabbit uh, that has antlers on it, uh, like a deer um, combination of a jackalope uh, or an antelope and a jackrabbit, of course. And they were thought to be pretty harmless. Um, they would often come when cowboys were singing songs around fires at night and they would be on the outskirts of the flickering flames and they would harmonize with the cowboys and sing along. They would also hum along or sing with the saws of the lumberjacks cutting the trees or the ax swinging. And they would always be on the verge of where you could see them. And I, they're probably, they're ubiquitous around the United States from coast to coast, but people often think of them in the prairies or, you know, the Southwest, uh, the Badlands are, are heavy with uh, the jackalope. But these were uh, fun creatures that were uh, thought to be real. And many people still think they're real. What about Sasquatch? Because I know he figures into some of those as well. The lumberjacks told a lot of stories about what we would think today as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Of course, they didn't have that terminology back then. Mm -hmm. They often called them wild men or hairy men or the wild man. And there were many accounts of lumberjacks not only encountering what they thought were insane humans that grew fur and whiskers, their beard and hair, uh, but they were of gigantic proportions or they found um, shoeless or bootless prints in the snow around their lumber camp, gigantic proportions. And knowing that no lumberjack would be foolish enough to walk around without boots on, but they didn't have that idea of a Bigfoot. So they just called it the wild man. And there were many accounts of them. And again, the trouble with a lot of this is sorting fact from fiction mm -hmm. that, you know, when they're telling stories that seem pretty credible and legit, but yet they're also telling stories of a hoop snake. That is a snake that can grab its own tail and form a hoop and chase you down a hill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's hard to tell what is a bunkhouse talk and what is legitimate sightings. What do you think was, well, I know Paul Bunyan was probably very popular to, to talk about, but what do you think was pretty much the most, the, 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 the most popular topics? I think uh, outside of uh, women <laughs> and drinking, uh, both of which were not allowed at most lumber camps. Um, it was Jackalope, the Hodag, um, the hodag figured in quite a bit because it was thought to be so fearsome. It looks like a mini dragon with spikes down its back, huge tusks, uh, claws, and it was said to rip apart uh, lumberjacks uh, at will. But most of these creatures that they feared, the creatures were thought to be very resentful of the lumberjacks because, again, much like it wasn't PC back then, Mm -hmm. They had no environmental with understanding at all that these forests, they weren't harvested in a uh, environmentally sound way. They were clear cut, take down every single thing you can and then sell the land to farmers who want to try to dynamite the stumps out. And that happened over and over and over. No replanting, no saving uh, uh, some of the stock to regroup itself. So uh, a lot of these animals were said to be resentful of the lumberjacks coming in and clearing away their territory. Uh, a creature like the agropelter, it was a, a monkey-looking creature that would sit up in the top of a hollowed-out tree, and it would have a its arm on a big branch or a limb, and anyone walking by, of course, would be looking at the ground not to stumble or to keep where they're going. And that agropelter would simply just smash them in the head with the log and kill them because they wanted to save and protect their land. That makes sense. Makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, nature fighting back uh, yeah. against the lumberjacks, which uh, by all accounts, uh, nature lost pretty heavily. Obviously. Um, 
What was the most enjoyable thing about researching the book? For me, it was getting back into that era, that lumberjack era. And I had spent a lot of time up in the Northwoods camping, hiking, and I, I, I felt like the lumberjack era was nearly forgotten, that it had all but disappeared, that the days of the lumberjack, people remembered there were lumberjacks, but none of the history, they didn't know tens of thousands of men around the U.S. and just how important the lumber industry was to many states, not only employing the lumberjacks, but the sawmills and all the products that were made from the lumber, from homes to shingles to brooms, uh, equipment, all that was courtesy of the lumber industry. And I was really sad that these creatures had been all but forgotten. Mm -hmm. They only existed in the memory of the lumberjack. So I wanted to put together a small little monograph that would celebrate the uniqueness of these beasts. Whether they're true or not, I'll leave it up to you to come to your own conclusion. But that's half the fun is telling these stories, wondering if they're true. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I would think that they would combine some of these stories that they were telling with the Native American stories as well, right? I mean, it would be kind of a combination. Yes, and that's where the Bigfoot and Sasquatch stories sure. uh, type to, tend to mingle in as well, that you would have people talking about this hairy man. And I can only imagine the Native peoples, the indigenous people saying, well, this is what we know of what we consider to be that. And an exchange of a lot of these stories. And again, it was that melting pot in the bunkhouse of mm -hmm. you'd have the people from uh, Eastern Europe coming over and maybe throwing in some werewolf type legends or a, a vampire legend. And you'd have all these stories that were never clean. They were always influenced by so many different groups. Well, what comes to mind is the, um, the, the, the miners up here, too, and the Tommyknockers coming in from the Cornish. You know, those stories. And you know what? Those stories are still around. They really are. And it's really interesting to see how they've been passed on, you know, generation after generation after generation. Each of these segmented industries or types of people always came up with their own, not only vocabulary and way of life, but also their own legends their own folklore. And these stories do persist. Uh, I can't tell you how many times every week somebody will contact me asking where they can capture a hodag or where <laughs> they can go hodag hunting, um, thinking that it, it's it's real. And the hodag was invented or at least uh, uh, made popular by Eugene Shepard of Rhinelander, who said he captured one. And he actually brought this thing around to county fairs and festivals throughout the Midwest, charging people to come see it. And then he brought it to his house in Rhinelander and dug a big pit where he'd have his kids in the pit, moving it with mechanical levers. And oh. when people found out he hoaxed it, more people showed up to see how he had done it than prior when they thought it was real. But like a great carnival barker that he was, he said, oh yeah, I did hoax this one only because they're too dangerous to actually capture a real one that yeah I've seen them out there they're out there but you just can't capture them so I had to hoax one in order to show people that they were real he also would bring tourists out to the back of his yard where he had sprayed perfume on the moss and he'd say it was a uh, uh, perfume moss a fragrant moss and he'd sell it to the uh, people that came to visit, a little bit of moss that smelled so good. And then, of course, when they got home a day or two later, it had lost its smell and they were out whatever he charged. So, uh, And he was also one of the first, Eugene Shepard was one of the first uh, tellers of Paul Bunyan tales. Some even claim he might be responsible for the legend of Paul Bunyan, but that's something we will probably never know. True, true, true. Question in the chat room is, does Chad have a favorite creature? Uh, for the lumberjack creatures, mm -hmm. my favorite creature, depending on the day that you catch me, but I really love the hoogag, which is on the cover that you've been showing. Is the If you could compare it to any animal, you'd compare it to a moose um, in the size and the general body construction of it. But think of Sesame Street Snuffleupagus walking around. Sure 
where it looks like a moose, but its lips are so long it drags to the floor. And it could not bend its knees, so it had to remain standing the entire time of its life, which meant at night it would have to sleep against a tree to stay up. And lumberjacks discovered this and they wanted to hunt the hoogag, but mm -hmm. they could never track it because it was just never got tired. It always kept going. So they started to find where their favorite sleeping areas were and they would cut the tree about halfway. So when the hoogag went to lean against it, it would fall over and it couldn't get back up and they could hunt them. Plus the hoogag was doing half their work by knocking the trees over for them. But it was thought to be a lot of the newspapers that covered these legends called it very dim-witted and not very bright. But they also said it would make a great pet to have. And there's just something about the combination of being gigantic, but yet being friendly and just kind of a lucky go-by-day um, explorer of the woods that really intrigues me. Um, more so than I think any of the other creepier and what I normally would think of as more interesting creatures. Now, the next question I had was along the line of them hunting, but how would they protect themselves against these things, you know, to, 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 you know, to, to take precautions that they, that they didn't get bothered? Well, as you can imagine, a lot of them bragged about how powerful and strong and good hunters and trackers and fishermen they were. But also, on the same level, they bragged about how clever and intelligent they could be. So there were giant in the, the Midwest and other places, California, Vermont, and the like. Up in the Northwoods, the mosquitoes got so bad, even in the winter, they were so gigantic that they could come and take away lumberjacks that every year many lumberjacks would be carried off by these creatures. So they turned to Paul Bunyan to solve the problem for them. And Paul remembered that when he was in the South, he had a similar problem with giant bumblebees attacking his lumberjacks. So he sent one of his trusted men down to grab these bumblebees in the south and bring them up to kill the mosquitoes, take care of the problem. But instead, the mosquitoes and the bumblebees got along great. They started marrying one another and having offspring, which were called beesquitoes because they had a stinger on each end. So they could Whoa. get you coming or going. Yikes. You know, so they, they could get you whether you were coming toward them or back. And some of those mated with uh, fireflies. So they had mosquitoes that could see in the dark, even worse for the lumberjack. So sometimes they tried to outwit them. But other times there were good old fashioned ways to protect yourself. For instance, there was a, a snow snake. It was pure white. It only came out after the first snow covering because it was completely camouflaged. It hibernated the rest of the year. It came over from Siberia, according to legend. And its bite was deadly, but not because it would be a venom that would kill you, the poison. It was you'd freeze to death if you were bit by one. <laughs> so the only antidote, the only cure that you could have was spirits, preferably whiskey. So the lumberjack said that if you got bit by one of these creatures, that you'd have to drink about as much as it took so you were falling off the bar stool, and then you'd be okay. You'd survive a snow snake. So there were times when they you know, had kind of these fun cures for it, but most of the time you had to outwit them. You had to use your, um, uh, your brain to be a little more clever than they were because sometimes even the strongest acts or the shotgun couldn't defend against these creatures. They were too fast. They were too good at hiding and camouflaging. And it was an unfair fight. So you'd have to just use your mind. Which again, was another bragging right for a lot of these lumberjacks. Not just their brawn, but mm -hmm. how bright they were. Hmm. It's amazing all the stories they came you know, all the creatures they created and came up with. And they had great ways of luring them out. There's a snow wasset, which is a, a creature somewhere between the size of a weasel and like a sea lion. And again, it's all white and it travels under the snow so you can't see it and it will feel for vibrations. And if you're walking above, it would know where you are and just come up and grab you. So what lumberjacks would do, apparently it loved uh, black licorice drops. 
So they would put these out on the snow and they'd have no idea where this thing was. But as soon as they saw one of these uh, licorice drops go under, they knew that's where it was and they could trap it and catch it and use its pelt for fur jackets or gloves or boot linings. So again, they had to outsmart the snow wasset because the snow wasset had the advantage of being undetectable other than finding out what food it liked and then luring it in. Just like you could lure in jackalopes mm -hmm. with whiskey, with beer, with spirits. And it was said that it was so easy to um, lure them in that it was outlawed. It was unfair that it was just too much because the jackalopes would come and drink and drink and drink and then they'd fall over and you could just grab them. So it was outlawed among uh, people in the U.S. to bait these uh, jackalopes, which you know, for any vacationer in the Great Lakes, uh, you know, the jackalopes would have a never-ending parade of uh, liquor and spirits uh, hmm. here in the Midwest to choose from. Let's shift a little, let's shift gears a little bit, because I know you've done research in other areas uh, with, with other creatures. Um, you hunted Loch Ness, is that correct? Yeah, I've done a couple expeditions at Loch Ness uh, looking for Nessie or the Loch Ness Monster, among other you know, infamous lakes around the world. Uh, sea serpents are one of my personal favorite topics to delve into. Let's talk about them a little bit. Yeah, um, I was fascinated the last time I was in Loch Ness, which was quite some time now. Um, I received more UFO reports than sea serpent reports. And if you've never been to the Loch, uh, it's just a magical place surrounded by hilly bluffs. It's just beautiful, you know, 20 miles long, about two miles wide, uh, upwards of 900 feet deep and super cold. I'm from the Midwest. I'm used to cold weather and cold water. But when I stuck my foot in Loch Ness, it felt like somebody was stabbing it with pins. It was so cold. Um, something you wouldn't leisurely be swimming about. But I love that it's one of these places where it seems to be a portal or a beacon or what John Keel, uh, the author and researcher, most notably of the Mothman prophecy, um, called window areas. These places where all kinds of weird things just seem to happen all in the same space. Interesting. And did you, um, how did you go about investigating Loch Ness then? You, you, you know, you get over there and, and what, what did you do? Do the research and stuff? Did you get out there with cameras or? Yes. The first time I was there, I was a, a lowly college student. So at that, at that time, you know, I was uh, on foot um, taking public transport or hitching my way around the lock, staying at hostels. And I was interviewing people. And for me, uh, you have, for me, I have to interview locals to get a real feel of the case, whether they think it's nothing but, you know, hogwash or they have some credibility to it. So I was interviewing people, but I also, because I didn't have uh, supplies to get my own boat or rig, um, luckily Loch Ness is very touristy. So on any given day, you could take three different cruises out there if you wanted um, to be out there. And uh, it was then, and the, on my additional return some years later, you know, I spoke with a lot of the captains of those rigs because mm -hmm. even though researchers come in and may sit there for a while, these people are out there all day long, every day, you know, so if something's going to occur, they have a good sight of it. And I spoke with one gentleman who had been doing tours there for over 20 years. In, the, in those 20 years, he had two experiences he couldn't explain including one where he was bringing his boat with all of the tourists back to the dock area and it was getting shallow toward the land and he saw something in the water bigger than the boat, but he couldn't identify what it was and of course didn't have cameras set on it or sonar mm -hmm. uh, mapping it out at the time. But, um, but nowadays, thanks to technology, you can just watch cameras pointed on the lock on the internet. Um, 24 hours a day, you can see Loch Ness cameras. So um, I was fascinated by how many people around the lock still had the belief that it was a possibility. Not saying that they wholeheartedly believed it was true, but they believed that it's possible. They had an open mind due to the, the size and the, um, just the history of the lock that it was possible something was in there. 
How do you feel about that? Do you, do you think it's a possibility? I do. And I've done several books on sea serpents and, you know, most people think sea serpents are either an undiscovered species unknown to science or one that perhaps is thought to be extinct that might not be extinct. And I always struggle with what I consider those type of traditional flesh and blood sightings of something that might be a giant sturgeon or a catfish or some known animal that's misidentified versus people that get an account of something that simply they're not mistaken a muskie. Uh, this thing's 40 feet long with a long neck or humps and that it's doing things that no known uh, fish would do. But then at the same time, you know, a lot of these places are landlocked. You would think that where's the body or sometimes a lot of these most infamous cases go decades without any sighting on the, the waterway. Where are these things going? They can't hide for that long, you wouldn't think. So for me, it's always a struggle thinking maybe there's something more supernatural to it. Or is it just a flesh and blood animal that people are seeing uh, and can't explain? But you know, some of these lakes that used to have a monster in them are so shallow now that it's impossible for it not to have dried up and for them right. to find it. But yet we have no definitive proof. So I guess I'm left with more questions than answers. Well, could it be the cave system? I mean, there's caves all over the world, too, You know, where, where they could go into an underground cave, an underwater cave. Yes. And that was uh, here in Wisconsin. We have a couple lakes near one another where even back in the early 1900s, when a lot of these sightings were occurring in those lakes, they theorized that there was an underground tunnel allowing them to skate from one to the other or allowing one of the lakes to replenish itself with game and food and it would go to the other one. And that's a theory, including Loch Ness, that they think there's some cave systems on the edges where it could simply go whenever they're doing the sonar uh, drifts of the, the lock or travel to other places and come back much like, uh, you know, Bigfoot maybe migrating, if you mm -hmm. will. Well, it makes sense because up, uh, up here, well, in Nevada, we have Lake Tahoe and mm -hmm. you've probably heard of Tahoe Nessie. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's another one that disappears. People see it, but then they don't see it, you know, but you got to figure Lake Tahoe is a is a dormant volcano too, so it must go down pretty deep, at some points. So there's got to be caves, you know, cave units along the base of that anyway. And I think a lot of people in the field certainly don't want to entertain the idea that there's something more paranormal or supernatural to these things. Um, when you start talking of uh, possible reports of UFOs in the same vicinity mm -hmm. as these creatures or hauntings of spirits uh, or other paranormal phenomena, you know, they kind of brush that away that I can believe that there's some undiscovered species, but now you start bringing in other weird things. It's too much. But I always ask the question when you're dealing with the weird, what is too weird? You know, where mm -hmm. do you draw that line? Are chupacabra sightings too weird? Our vampire sightings, crop circles. I mean, where do you draw the line? And I think if you draw the line too high, you miss out on a lot of good stories, whether they're real or not. Do you think, um, now that you mentioned the chubacabra, do you think a lot of the sightings of the chubacabra, because I know a lot of the ones that, that they supposedly found have been coyotes with mange and stuff like that. Do you think that, that that's a lot of the, the, the attribution to that? Or do you think people are actually seeing something? I think some of the, well, I think really there's at least two possibly various other sightings of Chupacabra where the early sightings, Puerto Rico and Central America, and even mm -hmm. Southern United States were more of what you would think of as that, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog looking creature with spikes down its back. Sometimes it was a biped running upright on its hind legs, um, looking much different than what you'd think of as the, the Texas or the Southwestern Chupacabra, which do uh, tend to be that coyote looking or just a, a dog, a weird wild dog looking um, creature. So I think there are a couple different variations of it. And whether again, it's changing, I don't know. Folklore always changes. For instance, I did a book on a creature called the Wendigo, uh, relatively unknown creature of the North, uh, started in Canada with the First Nations people. 
And in the original early lore, the creature was thought to be very tall, very thin, very skeletal, creepy looking, devoid of hair, really tight muscle. Sometimes it's missing its own mouth and lips because it's insatiable hunger for human flesh. It's consumed its own bodies. But if any of your viewers or listeners Google Wendigo today, nine out of 10 times the depiction they'll see, it'll have giant antlers or horns like an elk-like yes. figure. None of that was in the original lore. But over time, thanks to a few well-known stories and uh, some artwork to go along with those in the 40s, um, I think it's become that way. And now that is the folklore, whether it's true or not, or real realistic or not, that has become the Wendigo. Um, so sometimes these stories change in the couple hundred years they've been told. Well, like with the Chubacabra, when you think about the areas in South America where it's been seen, a lot of those areas, you know, for, for years and years and years have had the most UFO sightings. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when I was in, uh, I was in Puerto Rico talking with some ranchers and farmers and Obviously, the island doesn't have any big predators, uh, mm -hmm. so they don't fear their livestock until the chupacabra came around. But oftentimes, you'd start talking to these people, and once they started telling you stories, they started bringing up, well, now that you mention it, there were some weird lights or um, other things were going on at the same time. Again, maybe it's interconnected. So a lot of these stories are not in a vacuum, at least once you start digging. You know, which is when I start talking with people, you know, and people, sometimes they take you very literally where you say, you know, are there any Chupacabra stories, uh, sightings in the area? And they'll say, nope, none that we know of. Whereas if you approach it, like, has there been any strange occurrences in the area? And then they start rattling off haunted stories, cursed roads, UFOs, you know, portals, all this stuff that you would never have gotten if you had just simply asked about one specific sighting because people mm -hmm. think that's what you're interested in. You're not interested in this other stuff. So long ago, I kind of threw it out more as a, a fishing expedition of weirdness in general. What, yeah, what, what you can find within the area. Which brings me to my next question. Out of all the states that you've investigated, you know, this stuff and looked into this stuff, which state do you think is the most um, active with, with these type of stories? I think that's the, probably the hardest question because there are several components to it. One, it could be that Missouri has the most activity going on, but nobody's there to record it and report it. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be that the, the stories are happening, but nobody's there. We're in the Midwest. We have so many researchers and folklorists into this that are collecting every story. And it's changing today with people being able to do it online, submit their story and the like. But so it could be that just some states are better at recording it. It could also be that some states people feel more comfortable coming forward with that sighting, especially with UFO sightings where mm -hmm. people even to this day are more hesitant to report than they would be a haunted story or a uh, Bigfoot sighting. So it could be that people in California you know, just quiet about it. They don't want to think their neighbors look bad to them. You know, they don't want to think people will think they're crazy where maybe in the Midwest, people are just more open about it or in the South, they're, they're friendlier about it. So that's difficult too. But what I can tell you is that I found that no matter where you are in the U S or the world, every place has its legends. Mm -hmm. um, if you're ever bored on a rainy day or I don't know, during a pandemic, you can just start digging through your old newspaper archives for the place you live in. And you'd be amazed at how much weirdness has gone on in the past that you can't throw a rock in the U S without hitting a place that has a legend attached to it. Mm -hmm. So not only that, but a lot of these States have different types of legends where again, in the, in the Midwest, we have a lot of uh, gangster stories of hauntings of John Dillinger and Al Capone and the like. A lot of farmer stories where out west you get, you know, if you make your way to South Dakota, you get more of the Wild Bill Hickok story sure. ghost and Calamity Jane and native peoples and 
You head even farther out, you get a lot of the gold mining stuff. So I think every state incorporates its own history into its folklore. Sure, sure. What about Wisconsin? Because I understand there's a lot of stuff up there, a lot of stuff going on in Wisconsin. I think my home state here is unique in the fact that not only do we have a lot of different uh, geography where we have tons of Northwoods, tons of rivers, we have the driftless area uh, that was unaffected by the, the glaciers when they receded. We have, you know, big metropolis cities of Madison and Milwaukee. So we have a, a wide plethora of these different environments, if you will. But we also have wild creatures where we have Lake Michigan, Lake mm -hmm. Superior, um, and just an assortment of these weird creatures from werewolves to phantom chickens to hellhounds. I'm like, but again, I think some of it goes back to, we have a long list of folklorists from the early 1900s on that have been collecting these stories. Whereas other states, it was frowned upon back then and even today. So they don't have that long history of literature that we have here in Wisconsin because we had so many folklorists that were working with the university in Madison. You know, um, there's a lot of stories. Like, like you say, there's a lot of stories. Each state has their own individual turn on these stories. Are some of the creatures similar state to state? Oh, yes. You can find uh, similar stories no matter where you are. And not just what we would consider urban legends of the vanishing hitchhiker, where mm -hmm. you can find that in every single state, but also like a crybaby bridge. Sure. Uh, every state has a bridge where you go out there and you'll hear children or a baby crying. And it's usually because of a tragic accident or a murder mm -hmm. or a suicide or serial killer. Um, a lot of those, you have haunted train tracks where are, are cursed, where if you park your car and put it in neutral, yeah, spirits will push your car up right. hill to safety. So you have all of those, you have Bigfoot sightings as well, but um, usually you can find some similar story of some haunted bridge you don't want to go out on or a dead end road that's haunted by a family or cursed. So a lot of these are very similar, but also every state has that kind of unique story that you're not going to find usually somewhere else, that one that sticks out. And for me, after all these years of doing it, that's what really captures my attention. Those ones that are so bizarre that it just makes no sense. I love UFO stories, but most of the UFO reports that come to me are people seeing lights in the sky. You know, not a lot you can do with it. It's after the right. fact. It was just a light. They watched it for a bit. It seemed to be moving under intelligent control. And then it disappeared out of their sight. Um, you know, fascinating, but you get dozens and dozens of those where there's not much you can do with them. Whereas you get somebody saying, you know, not only were they uh, participating in a UFO sighting in their backyard, but now they traded pancakes for water with these creatures then you got my attention. And that actually happened in Wisconsin, uh, the Joel Simonton story where he claimed he gave water to this craft that landed in his yard. And in turn, they gave him these pancake things they were cooking. Um, so those stories, yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> you know, And I think as you'll probably agree that all of us are limited in our time in this field mm -hmm. where you can't investigate every case that you hear about or every person that contacts you. Right. So unfortunately you have to kind of pick and choose. And for me, it's become that it has to be twilight zone weird in order to really garner my attention. Understood. Pamela Schmidt lives in Wisconsin and she says, where can I read these stories? Oh, geez. Well, if you have a library, uh, which we have over 400 of them in Wisconsin, um, I recommend anything from Linda Godfrey's books. If you like oh, yeah. the, the beast of Bray road, which I think she's been on your program before. Yeah. A long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, beast of Bray road, but she's also written about Wisconsin ghosts haunted Wisconsin's one of her titles. Um, weird Wisconsin. She co-authored uh, Michael Norman from the university of river falls. Who's now retired has written several books on Wisconsin ghosts. So if you want, you know, the, 
old school, something in your hand to read, uh, go to your library. Uh, they'll have recommendations for you because the paranormals, the most popular category librarians get questions about. Um, but on, online as well, uh, mm -hmm. you can find so many websites where people are posting more and more stuff. But I, I think today with so much of this being posted online, it almost becomes white noise that people are posting. Some people I know, researchers are posting 10, 15 stories a day where there's no follow-up. There's no in-depth to it where, again, it becomes just kind of background where you're like, oh my God, you know, another winged creature spotted, but nothing ever comes of it. So I always love going back to the books. And if you don't have a bookstore, or you don't uh, want to purchase them. Libraries are a researcher's best friend. And you have a couple out about Wisconsin too, don't you? Yeah, I've done some on Wisconsin ghosts and mysterious creatures and lake monsters. Uh, again, uh, every library in Wisconsin, because I've I think I've presented in all of them now by this time. I have a lot of copies that you can pick up. Or if you want your own, you know, website, my website, or some of those big booksellers online that everyone seems to know about. I uh, won't mention the name, but they seem to gobble up a lot of um, sales as well. What do you think um, is the most prominent creature that, 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 that you've looked into? Um. Well, I'd probably say Bigfoot, but the problem with Bigfoot is, uh, you know, we think of it as one creature, but mm -hmm. obviously it can't be, or uh, uh, that'd be really weird if it were one creature. But, um, you know, I like creatures probably like that or Loch Ness people know about vampires, but again, vampires are that, they're not singular. Right. Whereas I did a book on a, a Bigfoot like creature in Southern Illinois called the Big Muddy Monster. And it was more white furred and it was covered in mud and had glowing red eyes and seemed to have some supernatural abilities associated with it. Um, and that stood out from what Bigfoot would be because, you know, thousands of reports of Bigfoot come in. So I think that's mm -hmm. probably the most um, well-known. And then you go from that to like the least well-known is well, what I mentioned earlier, the Wendigo, at least up until a few years ago, it's becoming more in the public consciousness now uh, due to TV shows and, and the like. But for a while, it was perhaps the oldest North American legend and maybe the least known of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think some of these creatures and legends, they've done very well for themselves uh, with almost like they have a, a um, agent or a marketing director <laughs> Because some of these stories that have grown to be put on the Mount Rushmore of paranormal, you know, they might have happened once or they have a few uh, nights where they occurred never to happen again. And then you get these other cases where things are going on for decades, but nobody's ever heard of it. And I'm always fascinated how some legends rise to prominence and others are not, um, especially in this time of the internet, where before it was unless you were from the region, you probably mm -hmm. wouldn't hear of a lot of these stories that if you travel to a small town in Texas, then you'd hear the stories from the locals, but you wouldn't know of it, you know, and living in the UP of Michigan. But right. today the internet's kind of changed all that. But uh, for me, I'm always amazed at how some uh, stories like the dog man's really hot right now. Uh -huh. uh, people love stories of the, the dog man, this werewolf kind of like creature but, you know, 20 years ago, nobody had ever mentioned it, but it's just mm -hmm. got a lot of publicity now. So uh, I wonder, you know, you, uh, UFOs were hot in the 80s and 90s. And then the ghost phenomena with all the TV shows came in and then all the Bigfoot stuff. And then for a while, vampires were really hot because of all the uh, teen fiction that was going around. So I'm wondering what the, the next creature might be that really takes off. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see that. Now yeah. Let's talk about now, now that you mentioned it, you've opened the door on it on the dog man. Let's talk about the dog man a little bit for people that don't know what it is. Well, people uh, mostly compare it to a werewolf, although it seems to be by some accounts different, but it's an upright. Um, well, most of the time upright, um, thought to be flesh and blood, usually associated with the Midwest, uh, upper Michigan, uh, Michigan 
in lower Michigan, they have a town that calls it the Witchy Wolves, uh, where it was thought to be a native protector of cemetery or burial grounds uh, that were disturbed either intentionally or by mistake. And they would harass people. Um, but today it's most associated with a werewolf type creature, uh, almost the same dimensions, but some claiming that it's much more likely uh, a paranormal than just some offshoot of unknown creature. Very interesting. Very. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was great. Well, thank you and keep an eye out. Yes. Time just blew by. I would like to get you on again to talk about other creatures. Yes, we we just opened the can tonight. Yes, we did. We're just we, we just kind of you know inch that thing up. So if you're willing to come back on at some point, I'd love to have you. I'd love to. Thank you so much. All right, and I will uh, put a uh, a tease into your books that you have. It, it you know after you're off the air before the show ends, it'll show I'll show all your books and everything so people can see them and stuff. How can people find you? Uh, my website is chadlewisresearch.com or just go to the weirdest legend you know about and I'll probably be there. <laughs> All right, Chad. Thank you so much for coming on. I so appreciate it. Thanks. Bye now. You have a good evening. All right. That was fun. I got to learn more about Paul Bunyan and the North Woods. And wow. Like I said, we just we just opened up the can of worms with the different... Um, stuff that we can talk to this gentleman about. He's done a lot. And when you see the books flash up on the screen, you'll see just how much he's done. Anyway, thank you guys for coming tomorrow. We're going to have a different kind of show. Ravi Sahay, I hope I said it right, is going to be joining us. He is a, um, not, I don't know if he's an expert, but he has used holistic healing to help him with his heart problems and some other major stuff that has happened to him over the years. And he's done it because being of Indian descent, he has um, done research on the different turmerics and stuff that, you know, in different herbs that they use in different, in different healing techniques. So he is going to be on tomorrow tell, talking to us about that and how we can kind of improve the way we live in our lives. All right, guys, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies. Also... Um, we are nonprofit. I forgot to run the thing at the bottom because I, I, I was running my new uh, intro, so now I'm used to that. Um, and that's at PayPal Me at California Haunts, as we could always use the extra funds to keep this thing going. You know, this is out of pocket. Uh, we're, we're a nonprofit group, so everything goes back into producing this show and buying equipment for the team. And our uh, YouTube is, is a bit of an issue uh, because. I'm not going to get YouTube mad at me, but the thing is, is that until we have uh, 100 subscribers or more, nobody can find us on YouTube. So I've been trying to figure out how to get found on YouTube. I've done, you know, I put our name in. I've, I've uh, put total, uh, total, titles of videos in. No bueno. So what I figured out was that what you guys can do, because um, I do need the subscribers, because I want to get a dedicated URL with California Haunts Radio on YouTube. So the way to do that, like I said, is to have 100 or more subscribers. So the only way you guys can get onto my YouTube, the, 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 this YouTube and, and subscribe is you have to go to our website and click on one of the videos there, because I've got, I'm going to have this video up later today. And then you can go into our archives and click on any video that, that goes back, you know, our 60-odd our, our videos. And just click on that. And then up in the upper right-hand corner on those videos is, is the subscribe button. So if you could do that for me, I'd really appreciate it because I would really like to have a dedicated link to our videos, okay? Um, or to our YouTube channel, rather. So that's www.californiahauntsradio.com. And if you could do that, I would really appreciate it because I, I'd love to get a link that you guys can just go to and, and, you know, that's where everything's at. Anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow, and I appreciate you all coming and listening to these great tales. I know I'm probably going to read up some more on Paul Bunyan and, and some other stuff, and uh, hopefully we all have a good night, and I will see you tomorrow.